Hello, I'm John J. Thompson, and it seems you have fallen way down the True Tunes rabbit hole. Maybe you've come to the podcast recently and are just working your way back to our first few shows, or who knows, maybe someone sent you a direct link to one of these early outings. All I can say is welcome, thanks for stopping by, Bruce and I are glad you're here, but have some mercy on us please. I'll be honest, when Bruce and I went back and listened to these early episodes, well, let's just say it clearly took us a handful of shows for us to get our feet under us. We knew what we wanted to do, but the way to get there took some tweaking. But the interviews are still valuable, and it's probably worthwhile to have these available as documents of our evolution, so we've trimmed them up a bit, tried to keep them timely, and inserted these little disclaimer introductions to each one. You might still hear a few dated references, some wonky edits, and some rough fades, so have some mercy on us as you dig these earliest episodes out of cold storage and enjoy. Thanks for listening. Oh, and if somehow this is your first exposure to our show, please check out any of our more recent episodes for a more accurate representation. Okay, Bruce, roll it. Today to get the public to attend a picture show, it's not enough to advertise a famous star they know. If you want to get the crowds to come around, you gotta have glorious technicolor, breathtaking cinemascope, and stereophonic sound. Hello. I'm John J. Thompson, and welcome to the True Tunes Podcast. Eddie Garmo has an amazing story. Well, he has lots of amazing stories, many of which he compiled into his first book, Rebel for God, Faith, Business, and Rock and Roll, last year. He grew up in the 60s in Memphis, Tennessee, and signed a record deal when he was just 15 years old, before coming to faith and pursuing a very countercultural understanding of Jesus. He then went on with his childhood friend Dana Key to spend more than two decades inventing and reinventing the concept of gospel rock with their band DeGarmo and Key. Later, Eddie became a massively successful record label and music publishing entrepreneur and executive, helping to shape the industry that evolved from the music he and his friends had sparked some 40 years ago. You heard me talk about DeGarmo and Key's Straight On album a couple episodes back here on the podcast, and you may remember that I was nine years old when my grandmother gave me that cassette. It's not an exaggeration to say that it changed my life. Flash forward several decades and, in one of the great full circle moments of my life, I got to work with Eddie for nearly a decade as a member of his creative team at Capital Christian Music Group Publishing. After he retired and I left Capital, I was honored to help him with his book. And on this episode of the podcast, I visit with Eddie at his home in Franklin, Tennessee, and we talk about his early days, motorcycles, loss, lessons, and a lot more. start this episode of the podcast with another toast to a fallen family member. Brian Healy, known musically as the vocalist and songwriter behind Dead Artist Syndrome, died of a massive brain hemorrhage on January 12th after several close calls and many years of health challenges. Brian was a dear friend of mine, and to many of us in the True Tunes orbit, his absence will be impossible to fill. Although most of us knew Brian as the witty, actually downright hilarious voice of the aforementioned alternative rock band, 
His impact on this scene goes back significantly farther than his own music does. In the 80s, as he pursued a career as an actor in Hollywood, most notably landing some body double work for the legendary John Candy and others, Healy promoted concerts and advocated for artists on the fringes of the alternative Christian music scene. By the time he got around to starting his own band, he had a veritable who's who lining up to support him. Dead Artist Syndrome, at various times, was comprised of members of Undercover, LSU, Altar Boys, The 77s, The Choir, and more. Many of the artists he had worked so hard to help were quick to back him up when he took the mic. But DAS wasn't just a favor, mind you. Even with a shoestring budget and no label support, Brian had a knack for catchy melodies, intelligent and acerbic lyrics, and a musical style that pulled heavily from the darker hues in the crayon box. And then there was that voice, which could curl from a booming, haunting baritone to a snarling bite and was perfectly suited to the genre. But unlike the ever-so-serious goth bands he admired and referenced, DAS songs were satirical, hopeful, affectionate, and even worshipful. And the man behind the whole affair was as well. Brian was thoughtful, critical, funny as all get out, and willing to brazenly skewer any sacred cow that wandered into his path. I dubbed him the godfather of gospel goth at some point in the 90s, but that really misses the scope of what Brian was. Every class has a clown but few are as intelligent or caring as Brian. Our community was blessed by his presence. I have so many hilarious memories with Brian, and I'll be sharing several in written form over the coming weeks, but one just came to me that I just have to share. Back in the early 90s, he and I were in Nashville at the big Gospel Music Week convention. We were definitely on the fringes of that scene, for sure. It was a pretty slick corporate affair. Most of the action took place in the lobby of a huge hotel, and there was an escalator that took people up to a couple of different floors where you could look down on the swarm of music biz folks networking below. Brian was up on the railing one evening and called me over, saying he had made up a really fun game. We would watch someone walk in the front door and guess how many people they would shake hands with before they got to the escalator, the front desk, or the elevator. Were they determined to really get somewhere or just to schmooze? But Brian took it to another level. He started to narrate what these folks were saying. He made up character voices for everyone, even two or three members of a conversation. I was dying. It was hilarious and completely inappropriate. Then a guy walked through the front door with his acid-washed jeans tucked into his bold black and white cowhide boots and his permed mullet looking perfect. Brian didn't recognize him, but I did. Before I could say anything though, Brian assigned him a fake name and a foreign accent and then imagined a bizarre string of comments that he was making to the handful of people who stopped him for an autograph or to shake his hand before he made it to the escalator. It was brutal. Then Mr. Boots made his way up to the level where we were at and then turned in our direction and then walked about 30 more yards straight toward us. Then, right up to us, Brian only stopped putting fictional words in his mouth when he was about 15 feet away, and it was clear that he was actually coming up to us. First, he addressed me briefly. Hi, he said. You probably won't know me, but I'm Ray Boltz. I sing contemporary Christian music, probably not the kind of music you like. I'm actually a big fan of True Tunes, though. My kids and I get the magazine, and we're big fans. Now, Ray Boltz was about as far from the True Tunes style as anyone in that hotel right then. But he was so cool, and he started name-dropping bands that he had discovered in the magazine. He wasn't kidding. He really was one of us. Over his shoulder, I could see Brian doing his best to keep from cracking up. But then, Ray turned to Brian. And you, he said, are Brian Healy of Dead Artist Syndrome. 
Brian's jaw dropped. I think it may have been the only time I ever saw him speechless. I saw you up here on the railing as soon as I walked through the door, he said, and I decided I just had to come up and say hello. I am a huge fan. I truly think you have one of the best voices in Christian music, and I love your songs. Brian shook his hand, thanked him, stammered a little bit, and then I was the one looking over Ray's shoulder trying not to bust up as Brian received some truly encouraging words from this man he had been mocking so ruthlessly just a few seconds before. With that, Ray thanked us again and excused himself. He had somewhere he had to be. I asked if Brian wanted to play the schmooze game some more, and we both cracked up. I can't remember if he had known who Ray Bolts was that night or not. Brian was a good friend to so many of us. I was honored to play in his band several times and even played keyboards on a song or two on his 2003 album, Saving Grace, which was produced by our own Jeff Elbel, who went on to become Brian's musical director at several late era DAS shows. We both got to back up Brian at the Audio Feed Festival in 2016. I got to see Brian last summer for a few minutes and we talked about collaborating again. He was excited about the relaunch of True Tunes. Farewell, Brian. We already miss you. It doesn't even seem real. Now, while it's true that Eddie DeGarmo has become a good friend, I'll never not look at him as a mentor and big brother type. As you'll hear from this wide-ranging conversation, which happened in his kitchen, he remains active and engaged, both as an artist and as a business leader. As you'll hear, Eddie didn't even wait for me to ask a question before he started telling me about a pretty amazing experience he had just had at the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally. I hadn't even gotten my recorder set up yet, so we join this conversation somewhat already in progress. And the Dakota Baptist Convention purchases a Harley-Davidson, and they raffle it. But in order to qualify to enter the raffle, you have to listen to a three-minute story. So I volunteered to be one of the three-minute stories. And so I went to Sturgis and witnessed the bikers for a week. This place where they do this is a storefront on the main drag. And there's this motorcycle sitting there. And there's a couple guys or girls or whatever out front that are telling people to come inside and sign up for the, for the raffle for the free Harley. But in order to, to do that, you just have to listen to a three-minute story. And so these people would come in, and some of them pretty rough-and-tumble characters, right? So this first guy comes in, and I'm talking to him. My testimony in three minutes is I talk about my brother coming home from the service and walking in on him in the middle of the night where he's you know, got the bottle of Jack on the table and the Bible and all that sort of thing. And how that you know six months later i finally agreed to go to church with him and i heard one day that jesus was coming back which i didn't know that growing up and i grew up in church but i'd never heard that he was coming back and it bothered me that 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 i was frightened of that and i said so that night i asked jesus in my own words i said you know i've I've done some really weird stuff forgive me of my sins and i want to dedicate my my life to you that's that was that simple and then I would ask them, have you ever had an experience like that? Have you, ever, have you ever asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins? And some would say, well, I've never sinned. And, I, and we'd go into that a little bit, maybe. Or some of them, I'd say, well, look, you, you, know, you don't have to talk anymore. Your three minutes is up. Let's get you signed up. And some of them would say, oh, no, let's, I, I like this. Let's talk some more, right? 
But the first guy that came in, I told my story to, and he was a pretty rough looking character. So he began to tell me how that he rode with the Hells Angels for six years and he had a daughter. He said, when my daughter was two years old, one day she came down with this really, really high fever and we weren't sure what caused it. We had to take her to the emergency room and they thought she was gonna die. And he said, I told God that he, if he would uh, not let her die, that I would do something for him. And he said, I think that's why you're telling me this. And I said, well, I think you could be right. I said, would you like to pray with me? And I said, you know, here's what I prayed when I prayed, you know, just, Lord, I don't really even know what I'm praying for other than I want you to take over my life and and you know and I believe in what you did to forgive me of my sins and thank you for that and I said it's kind of that simple and so yeah I, I led several people to, to Christ that week and uh, one of the more interesting conversations I had was with a Jewish man from Brooklyn I said man I said, this looks out of place. Tell me about this. <laughs> he said, oh, I own a clothing store in Brooklyn. He said, we sell biker apparel, so I thought I'd come out here and set a booth up. And I said, well, what brought you in here? And he said, well, I want to win a motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> and so we, we had a really interesting dialogue, very respectful dialogue about, you know, I asked him, I said, have you ever read the prophets in the Old Testament? And he said, not really. He said, we kind of focus on the first five books, you know, Pentateuch. And I said, well, you, you should look into the, the prophets like Isaiah and, you know, even Psalms of David and all that sort of thing. And you, you ought to read the claims, the forecasting, the foreshadowing of the Messiah. And I said, and then you ought to try to put them together with, you know, historically, who, who just Jesus was or is. And then I gave him a couple books to read. But we had a really pleasant conversation that probably lasted 20 minutes or so. And he was, he was open, and I said, you're a smart guy, I can tell that. And I said, you know, seek and you shall find. I said, I believe that's true, do you believe that's true? Oh yeah, I believe that's true. That was my week at Sturgis. I think that when when God has saved us and brought us into his kingdom, he's asked us to expand his kingdom. And most times when people would ask Jesus what the kingdom of God was like, he, he just kind of tell a story about an idea, mm -hmm. about a, a guy doing the wrong thing and a guy doing the right thing. You know what I mean? Or something that looked small but was really big. Yeah, <laughs> and he, he, but it was more just like the idea, this is the kingdom of God. So I, I think the way we build the kingdom of God, if we're a believer, is just as we go, we do the right thing. When you guys were starting off with Guillermo and Key, um, the conversations and the music were more of a flow back and forth because it was a group of friends gathering together in a furniture shop or something like that, having coffee, and it was a, it was a combination concert, Bible study, hang time. It wasn't so much the... Uh, concert with rock and roll for an hour and then a talk right it was more yeah it was it was more yeah as you go type of thing we'd play a song or two and then somebody would share something and we and we were a bunch of hippies you know and it was cool but i actually remember that when we would play 
I would pray, you know, God, don't let me get absorbed in the music. Let me think about you. I never believed that it could be the same channel. If I was playing a lead solo and I got too lost in my notes, you know, somehow I was less spiritual, if you will, mm-hmm. which I don't think is true anymore, but I did when I was young, young believer. You know, we were very cognizant in what we felt like that we were about. What we felt like we were about was really a simple statement, is that we just grew up playing rock music, and so we wrote rock songs to share our faith. It was kind of really that simple. Didn't even know really if there was an audience that would enjoy it per se, but we thought maybe there would be. And early days, as you know, we tried playing the same places that we played with our mainstream band. And we just played our new songs. And sometimes, you know, we would say something about the gospel in between the songs, and it just never went too well. (laughs) You know, because you'd be at some dance or club or fraternity party or something, and it was just, you know, it's kind of like playing basketball in in the Sunday morning service. It just didn't fit. (laughs) You know what I mean? What's interesting is like back in the 60s, there were plenty of rock bands using music to promote ideas sure. and they were very countercultural and very in your face and there was a lot of preaching going on as long as the sermon was anti-war or something else. But as soon as you started talking about, I mean, hearing this from people like Larry Norman or mm-hmm. other folks that were of that vintage, mm-hmm. some audiences, depending on how you presented it, could see Jesus as that countercultural figure and resonate. Some audiences just wanted to hear, hey, whatever feels good, do it. You know, that that was the message they wanted. It to was the message and it was it was just a it was a time that people were searching for freedom in their own expression, whatever that was. And some found it through drugs, some found it through spiritual means, whether it was Christianity or Hinduism or Buddhism or Mm-hmm. You know, that sort of thing. There was a lot of spirituality, and I still think there is today. I think there's a lot of spirituality in humankind today, and it takes various forms. Uh, in fact, we see a lot of postmodern, is a little bit of an old term now, it's more like a deconstructionist Christianity, yeah. where people decide, I think, and this is going to sound pretty negative, but it, they decide what they want to believe and how it fits in with their personal experience. And then if it fits in, they believe it. And if it doesn't, they don't. It's kind of that simple. Now, you just uh, released a book last year, Mm -hmm. and that was- Rebel for God. So what was the impetus? What was the motivation to finally put the stories down on paper? Well, it started with, I was just wanting to chronicle the stories for my family. We, you know, we have uh, 11 in our family, five grandkids and two son-in-laws and two daughters. And I just didn't want the history of what my wife and I had grown up in to be lost. I thought it was a transformational time. Mm-hmm. It certainly was for my life and my wife's life. So I just wanted them to know, because the only thing that they knew in these days is they could watch old videos on YouTube. 
and you don't get but so much of the story that way. So I felt like that it was it was the right thing to do. And then, you know, kind of to test the waters, I let some friends read a chapter or this here or there, and they encouraged me to seek a wider audience. I never really thought of it in the beginning as a work that was going to be published and certainly not published at retail for sale. I didn't think that way. I just wanted to chronicle it for our family. And then as I thought about it, you know, because my business for years was working with artists and I knew the journey that those things would take if they came to me with an idea and then I put a team of people around them and sometimes it would maybe not fully even resemble the beginning idea by the time it was all done. Sometimes in a better way, but not always. But I didn't want my story to take that journey. So I decided to write it. And then I said, who can I get to help me fix it? <laughs> <laughs> and so we worked together, I don't know, it was a few months. And because the book that we wrote together was, you know, about twice the size of the book that everybody else gets to see. But you helped me organize my thoughts in a way that were, I think, much more readable. And, you know, you asked me once, you said, you know, what do you really want out of this book? And I said, I just want people to turn the page. You know, I just want them to feel like that they have to turn the page. Right. Just give me to the next page. benefit of sitting in your office with you so many years when we would be in a meeting with somebody and some of those stories would come up and I would hear you tell the story and I remember thinking how how fun and how perfect those stories were to illustrate certain points so I remember part of the thing was to organize these stories around the way you would use those stories because you know for me the value of your book is that it's not just to build your legacy it's to actually impart some wisdom to the next generation to say, here's some things I learned along the way. And when you got done with it uh, and you looked back, how does the story strike you? What was it like to look back on that whole thing? And well, I mean, I think it's pretty cool for one thing. To, and I think there's a pretty good character arc in there, you know, of one sort or another, good or bad, however you want to say it, you know. Uh, but. It was interesting, my editor from the publisher said to me once, he said, you know, the amazing thing about your story, it seems to me that, that every time failure came into the picture, which it did sometimes, you just always got back up. And I said, well, I never thought of it that way, but I guess, because it was just a part of the process that failure was a part of the process. I mean, in the early days of, of playing Christian rock music in the South, my gosh, we had stuff thrown at us. And uh, I mean, we never got paid anything. We never thought of it that way. And I don't, I don't if, if I didn't have a missional look at it, if I didn't feel like there was something beyond the music, and I liked the music, nothing against the music, I dig it. But if there wasn't more, I don't know that we would have ever done that.
what's a story you can think of that got cut out of the book that people should hear? It was early 70s, like 1972. We were asked to play at a Fellowship of Christian Athletes assembly at the local high school in Memphis, one of the big schools. And I had just bought my very first synthesizer. In those days, they had their assembly, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes had a full school assembly in a public school. I walked up, we set up, and I walked up to the microphone and I said these words, I remember these words. I want to tell you how Jesus changed my life. And then I turned to my synthesizer and I started making these enormous beastly sounds out of it like mastodons, you know, in the jungle or, you know, helicopters shooting napalm in Vietnam or, you know what I mean? Really crazy loud. And I looked on the front row and I recognized this man that I knew because he was on television in Memphis named Dr. Adrian Rogers. And he was, he's passed away now, but he was a pastor of a big, big kingpin Baptist church called Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis. He ended up becoming the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, I think a couple, three times, you know. And I, I just looked at him basically just melt down in the front row. So, you know, a few years go by and we put our first, first album and it does okay, and put our second one, it does better, and our third one does better. And so we start getting accepted around, around the South. We would play at the Baptist Association in Louisiana or in Mississippi or Kentucky or Arkansas or Georgia, but never in Tennessee, ever my whole career ever. And so, uh, you know, I had a friend that went to work on staff of Bellevue Baptist as the college minister. And he told me, he said, you know, years later, he said, hey, he said, you know, Dr. Rogers is not a fan <laughs> of what you do. But he's made a decision that he's gonna, he's not gonna speak about it publicly. And so he said, he's not gonna, you know, trash you publicly, but you know, he doesn't like what you do. He doesn't like what you're about. So a few years go by and we get more successful and more successful. And one day uh, I get a call from Bill Gaither and well, they, they were playing at Bellevue and I get a call at my house and it's Bill Gaither on the phone, which I've known, I've known him for a few years. Eddie, what are you doing? Are you in town? And I just happened to be in town. He goes, we're playing at Bellevue tonight, the Gaither Trio, would you, would you come by and see us? And I said, well, yeah, yeah, sure. And uh, in those days, we kind of had this, this uh, I don't know, rule, I guess is the best way to say it, that when we would go out in public, we would look the part. You had to be Eddie DeGarmo. You couldn't yeah. just be. This is probably 88, 89. We, we always put on the clothes that we went out in public. And so, you know, I put on all my best rock and roll clothes and went over to Bellevue and Bill said there'd be somebody meeting me by the door back there at so-and-so o'clock, five o'clock or whatever. And sure enough, there was. And this guy led me in this back entrance. Uh, this guy takes me in this back door and he leads me down a hallway and we're having a friendly conversation. He leads me through to this big office and has big double doors and he opens the doors and inside there's Bill Gaither and Dr. Adrian Rogers. I walk in and Gaither immediately gets up, comes over and puts his arm around me. He goes, Adrian, he said, this is Eddie. He said, Eddie, this is Adrian. He said, you guys should meet, you know? 
I'll see you later. <laughs> <laughs> just leaves you there. Like somehow he knew about the rift and he's like, I'm yeah. gonna fix this. Right well, he now. obviously did. Somebody yeah. shared it with him. Right. I mean, I guess it had been Adrian Rogers. And so, you know, I spent probably 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes with Dr. Rogers, just sharing stories and talking about our faith and what we wanted to accomplish. And, and from then on, you know, you got it. You got it. We're going to step away from this conversation with Eddie for just a few minutes to take a look back at some of the best releases of 2019, but don't go anywhere. There's definitely more coming. calling an audible on this episode and instead of side A and side B looking at two albums, I'm going to give you a quick look at what I think are 13 of the best albums that came out in 2019. I'm not calling these the best and I know there are several amazing albums I've left off this list, but these are albums that caught my ear, moved my heart, and seemed to capture the kind of vibe True Tunes is all about. So here we go. by The Who. Sneaking in just under the wire, The Who seemed to be giving us what may be more of a New Year's album than anything else. Full of hard-won wisdom, you know, the kind you only get from surviving to a ripe old age instead of dying young like they once said they hoped they would, and loaded with the kind of layered, sophisticated, and focused rock and roll that feels downright symphonic compared to today's stripped-down, low-budget style, Who often feels like a study in Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. We'll see how well it ages, but so far this is feeling like a modern classic to me. It wouldn't take much to prove you wrong. It wouldn't take much to prove you wrong. Threads by Sheryl Crow. You heard about this at length already, and it's holding up. Such a strong piece of work. Josh Garrels. I remember coming across Josh Garrels busking by one of the food trucks at Cornerstone several years ago, playing acoustic guitar with backing from a beat-making boombox. I begged him to enter the new band showcase competition the next year, and he did. He made the cut and played on an actual stage. He then seemed to take over the place with his otherworldly blend of soul, folk, pop, and urban alternative music. Chrysalin, his latest full length, is just as lush and intricate as you'd expect from this now veteran artist. Jesus lying in his mother's arms is a photon released from a dying star. We move through the forest at night. The sky is full of momentary light and everything we need is just too far. 
We are photons released from a dying star. Ghostine by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. You just have to hear this record and give it the time and space it deserves. Cave and his collaborators dive straight into the very real grief that followed the loss of his son. It's conceptual and personal and spiritual and stunning. May the wild wind take your crazy heart wherever you're going. Going round and round Don't prove me wrong It's the falling Lovers, Thieves, Fools, and Pretenders by Chris Taylor Chris Taylor is a lifer, a true troubadour. He's an artist's artist and he flies without a net. He's also been part of the True Tunes ether since our very early days, so it's especially exciting to hear an album this developed and engaging at this stage in his career. Though you can still hear his familiar voice, melodic sense, and lyrical imagery, it comes packaged alongside a much more synth-driven and electronic palette. Bruce Coburn is just amazing. Though he is known, and rightly so, as one of the great lyrical songwriters of the last 40 years, he is also a breathtaking guitar player and composer. Crowing Ignites is his latest instrumental project, and it is well worth exploration. Although his dexterity is apparent, Coburn's lyricless work is never about pyrotechnics or flash. These songs have structure, melody, nuance, and compositional sophistication just so good. Trophies by Luxury. The story of the band Luxury is finally being told via an excellent documentary film, Parallel Love, that has been appearing in art house theaters around the country. And yes, I was honored to serve as the music supervisor for that film. That band, three members of which are now Orthodox priests, have an excellent new album out that makes the story that much more compelling. Trophies is definitely amongst the band's best work. Orphans by Michael McDermott. This year, Michael McDermott gathered a batch of songs that he had either never recorded or had recorded but neglected and revisited them in the studio and on tour. Calling the project Orphans, McDermott breathed new life into tunes that he said just wouldn't leave him alone. 
I'm glad for that haunting. Orphans is an excellent piece of work and sets the stage for his upcoming new album very nicely. According to Water by Joe Henry. Singer-songwriter and producer Joe Henry responded to the devastating news that he has advanced cancer by composing a batch of deeply spiritual and soulful songs that feel, at times, like a very different kind of worship music. While Henry is now probably best known as the producer behind amazing albums by Solomon Burke, Bonnie Raitt, Loudon Wainwright III, and Over the Rhine, he has released 13 albums of his own songs and is well worth discovering. The Gospel According to Water is a gorgeous piece of heart and soul to be sure, with songs Henry says were mostly written and recorded very quickly. No one would blame the Ocean Blue, a band that started in the 80s and never broke through to anywhere near the level they deserved for making a merely okay record every once and again. Just getting to hear David Schelzel's voice over some jangly guitars on a decent song would honestly be enough for me. But no, Kings and Queens is the kind of record that could only be made by artists who care much more than their market share should allow. Over a decade after the Ocean Blue first came on the scene, the whole emo thing happened, and I came to retroactively think of these guys as hyper-melodic proto-emo. Kings and Queens is every bit as in the pocket as any of their major label work, but I actually like the songs even more. Keggy and Rex Paul. I know you've heard us talk about Phil and Rex a lot this year, but Illumination is worth the hype. And, by the way, it's not the only project Keggy has released in 2019. If you have not taken the time to listen through Illumination, though, you need to. 
but we didn't treat it right It used to be a man's world, but all we did was fight I'm glad it's finally in the hands of the women and the girls I can't wait to see what they do with what's left of the world Closer Than Together, the Avid Brothers And yes, you just heard a full review of this album on the last episode of the podcast. But Closer Than Together by the Avid Brothers is aging very well with me. I'm pretty sure it will end up being the album I spun the most in 2019. Breakdown on 20th Avenue South, Buddy and Julie Miller. For many reasons, some too hard to articulate briefly or intelligently, Buddy and Julie Miller's Breakdown on 20th Avenue South has got to be my album of the year for 2019. It's just so profoundly good, true, and beautiful. I'm just going to leave it right there for now. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to the True Tunes podcast. And now back to Eddie DeGarmo's kitchen. So when you when you think of a story like that, what did you learn in that afternoon? Well, we have a tendency to to put on the faith of culture, put on the clothes of culture around our faith. We have a tendency to, to wear our faith in the way that we look and the music that we like and you know the media that we listen to and all that sort of thing. And usually the previous generation or others, maybe the same generation from different parts of the world don't understand, they can't understand our language. I was in a church meeting, you know, I'll get in trouble for saying this too much, but I was in a church, a church meeting a couple of weeks ago, and I go to a small liturgical, really cool church that we love. But we were, we were talking about, we're, we're in a building phase, you know, trying to figure out who we're going to be. We meet in a school right now. And a conversation ensued about, well, I don't want to be like this church over there because they have big screens and they have a band on stage. Then somebody said something I thought was really interesting that I just couldn't let hang out there anymore. They said, well, I don't want to be a personality-driven church. And I said, well, what, what, do you, what, do you, what does that mean? <laughs> what, do you, what does that mean? I don't want to be a church where, where people come to hear a personality. I want to be a church where they come to worship and they hear the liturgy. And it all sounds really good and it all sounds really fine. I'm like, but hold on. I said, Jesus was a person. Jesus had a 
pretty cool personality, <laughs> right? And I don't think that we, most of us are not gonna be a Francis Chan or a Louis Giglio or, you know, those kind of guys. But I think it's okay for churches to be focused around people that can share the faith in a way that engages people's lives. I don't want to be egotistical, but if you're a preacher or a teacher or anybody that feels like they have value and to share something or a singer or a visual artist, there is a certain amount of more positive ego than negative, but there has to be a reason that you believe that you have something to share. So let's call it ego. Obviously, there's a lot of people that didn't believe you were really going to be retired. They thought for sure you were coming back somewhere, but you... Well, that's a press release word. I mean, retirement, you know. So you don't consider yourself retired? Not really. Not, not. I mean, maybe in, in the sense that I don't go to an office every day like I did, you know. And you're still involved with different... You got different... A little bit of stuff. Right. I mean, and I can pick and choose. Right. You know, I consult a few folks and... Um, I still go out occasionally and do something musical or, yeah. or that sort of thing. But got some community projects going on. Some I do social programs. I do. I've got. And yeah, I work with a couple of organizations. One's called Franktown Open Hearts, and we serve at-risk kids in our community. And you know, we live in an affluent community where I live right now. And uh, you wouldn't think that there's poor kids in our town, but there's a lot, a lot. And so we have 12 different programs that we plug these kids into. And when they're little, first grade through fifth grade, it's recreational. And then by the time they hit sixth grade, they can either, we have four or five trade programs, anything from sewing to culinary arts to, you know, heat and air to plumbing. And then we have, you know, some computer classes and finance classes and stuff. And these kids are all single parent homes virtually 100% government subsidy, you know, um, on the free and reduced lunch programs in their schools, and they're just poor kids, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, so we work with them. Last year, Susan and I put together a Christmas light show for these, as a fundraiser for these kids, one of these big drive-through Christmas light shows. Yeah. It was a mile and a half long, and we had 70,000 people go through it. And it was that was anything but being retired. <laughs> right. Oh my gosh. That was like worse than, you know, what I had back when I had a team of people. Right. But so we, tr we work with our organization, try to work with these kids, and try to give back, you know, yeah. through what we do there. And of course, we're involved through our church, and I'm still involved with Trevecca right. University. Help when they ask me. It's interesting. I've been learning a lot of the songs that I never had time to learn, oh. you know? Well, and songs that some of your audience would know, but last week I learned three Van Morrison songs. I learned End of the Mystic, oh, yeah, and uh, A Brown-Eyed Girl, and uh, what was the third one I learned? Domino. Okay. Yeah. Um, B3 or accordion? Just, no, on piano. Are you still playing accordion? A little bit. Learning that? Yeah, yeah, pick that yeah up. I like accordion. I met, I met your accordion teacher along the way at some point. Did you? Yeah, Dino. And <laughs> he's, he's a good guy. And I learn new songs that I want to learn. 
and uh, I led worship interesting you you'll get a kick out of this for the very first time so you know I went to our website that you and I used to work at worship together and, right. you know I said well this is pretty cool I can like download these chord charts and stuff <laughs> <laughs> well, first I gotta give them my right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I became a member oh it's pretty gosh, funny that's you know and downloaded three yeah. or four songs and yeah and then you started to go, wait a second, we could do Into the Mystic as a worship yeah, song at an Anglican yeah, church, couldn't yeah, we? Yeah, we could. <laughs> yeah, we could get away with that one, actually. shift from the kind of stuffy church world and then the Jesus movement and the rock and roll and that shift and then the way that became mainstream contemporary Christian music became very established and profitable and your shepherding role in the modern worship phase you know and and seeing now how Christian music has basically become worship music First of all, do you think there's a downside to this one genre of modern worship being so dominant in the church? Uh, yes, I mean, it would be the short answer. I do think there's a downside. You know, I mean, the upside is the, the songs themselves can be really genuine experiences for the people that sing them and helps the congregations get in touch with their emotions and their spirituality with God. You know, from a creative and artistic side, not all the songs because, you know, you have some groups that definitely break out, but uh, so many of the songs, when you write for congregation, it's very, very simple melodies and keys that, that, that they can sing, which are different than professional singing keys a lot of the times. And creatively, it can be sometimes in a pretty tight small box you right. know and once again there's been some people that have expanded that from time to time and some writers are, are more adept at you know at, at conveying some pretty deep thoughts in worship songs and other writers some some of the songs are very simple and surfacey in, in their their view the interesting thing about worship music is worship music is pretty acceptable by the mainstream mm -hmm. way more ex acceptable than what we call ccm music today you know ccm music that has a more of a horizontal lyric in other words i was this way now i'm this way you're the way i was be the way i am right right, right. that's basic ccm yeah. right and and worship music is all you know god You've shown me this, you were this, God, you were this. The mainstream seems to understand that right. better, and it's easier for them to categorize. I mean, you know, you go read the lyrics to the great American novel by Larry Norman, and all of a sudden, or there's just basic indictment, you know, against you know mankind. Right. right. <laughs> and so, right. 
Worship music doesn't do that now, right now. Maybe one day it did. And in some of the Psalms, which was, you know, some argue that was the original worship music, what David wrote, I mean, he did do that, you know. So maybe it will expand to that. But I don't know that I see it as a positive either for the church or for the sustainable sustainable commerciality of worship music because some of the more creative artists right now in Christian music have a tough spot to find a place to survive you know and uh, I like it when it's when it's better that we're a pretty diverse palette of mm-hmm. art forms if you will now that you're kind of removed from the day-to-day corporate involvement of running a company. You're removed, at least, you know, professionally from being the artist and, and the label head and all of that. Do you think there's any, with the benefit of wisdom and hindsight, are there any things you go, now, that's something I would have done differently? Yeah, probably a lot of those things. There's <laughs> not just one, right. you know, but like, for example, I remember the early days of Christian music the only place that our products were available were in pretty peculiar Christian bookstores that you had to be kind of a weird kid to visit, you know. (laughs) And so we lobbied so heavily to get our products in the mainstream stores at that time. It was chains like Sam Goody's and Tower and all that sort of thing. And even Walmart and, you know. And what, what we didn't realize probably commercially is how much we were eroding the base for Christian supply stores, you know, product stores. Because, you know, these other big stores were more diverse and they could sell the products cheaper and reach the consumer better. And so, you know, I, I feel that I had a part in the demise of the Christian bookstore, you know. And sometimes I'm not sure, so sure that's a good thing because the mainstream stores, they're all about what sells. They don't get, you know, as long as it sells, we'll handle it. And now the distribution question for music and, and books probably too, and gonna be movies shortly, has found its way to the consumer through these streaming services, which the good news about that is you have global distribution for these products. You know, the, the tough news from a marketing standpoint is you have millions of products. You know, it used to be thousands, and then it was tens of thousands. Now it's millions of products, you know? So if you're trying to make a way for yourself and get people to notice your music or your movie or your art, whatever you do, the competition's changed, you know? Do you feel like, to go back even farther, that it was good or maybe inevitable that Bands like DeGarmo and Key ended up in a separate industry as opposed to just being a rock band on a, on a mainstream label? Well, it could have been, but we were censored by the mainstream before we were censored by the Christian audience. <laughs> you know, we were. Because right. we, we started off, our band, our story, we started off in a mainstream environment. Because you were signed to a major we were. secular label. And we became Christians and started writing these new songs that reflected our beliefs and the mainstream labels censored us. They said, you can't do that. And I ran into that three or four times in my career. It wasn't just at the beginning. So the sense, you know, and we weren't willing for good or bad. I'm not saying it was always the best reasons, but we weren't willing to compromise our message to be commercially successful. And Jesus said it way better than I could ever put it into words. 
words. He said, look, he said, the world's not going to like you because they don't like me. <laughs> right. <laughs> don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. They're not going to like you. Right. So if, if you're one that's, that's called to, to minister at that transparent level with your art, don't be surprised when the world reacts negatively towards you. Thanks again to Eddie and Susan DeGarmo for opening up their home to the True Tunes podcast for the complete, unedited Eddie DeGarmo interview. You're going to want to stay tuned. We are going to post that soon along with lots of other unedited interviews. Uh, there is a lot more to our conversation. You're going to get to hear it all soon, so stay tuned for that. As we come to the end of this episode, I'm going to climb up on my soapbox and look back on a crazy year and forward to a new decade. I'm thinking about the stuff that holds us back, the stuff that holds me back. Why is it that we tend to cling to the things that keep us from growing, moving, and thriving? Like holding tight to an anchor at the bottom of the sea when all we have to do is let go and we'll fly to the surface. Sometimes it's material stuff that I cling to. Sometimes it's people that I think I need in my life to give me meaning or importance. Sometimes it's my work. Sometimes it's even my religion. But the longer I walk this road, the more convinced I am that there is nothing, not even good things, that we in our broken and self-destructive states can't twist into chains. Hebrews 12.1 reminds us that since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, meaning we're not alone in this journey, we should throw off everything that hinders us and every sin that so easily entangles us, that we should run the race that is marked out for us. When I was a kid and I heard DeGarmo and Key's song Long Distance Runner, it made sense to me. I think that I need to keep that idea in my head now more than ever. What is it that tempts me to turn aside, to trust in my eyes or my bank account or the way things are done more than I trust in the way of love? Whatever those things are, I need to jettison them so I can run this race clean and strong. I only get one time around this course. Okay, I'm coming down off the soapbox now. That is going to do it for episode six. Thanks as always to my co-producer and editor Bruce Brown and to Phil Keggy and Rex Paul for the special instrumental mix of Full Circle that serves as our theme song. And of course, thanks to Eddie Garmo for taking the time to talk with us and for so much more that he has given us all over the years. Phil Keggy's music is available at philkeggy.bandcamp.com and Phil Keggy's Garage, I know we've mentioned it to you before, but an unbelievable trove of previously unreleased live stuff, jams, rarities. It's just incredible what they have unearthed and made available to all of us at Phil Keggy's Garage. Make sure to check that out, philkeggy.bandcamp.com. Everything in the True Tunes podcast is protected by U.S. copyright law and is the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions, with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. This program is intended for the private use of our listening audience, and Gyroscope Productions can be reached at truetunesmusic at gmail.com or P.O. Box 60401, Nashville, Tennessee, 37206. So until next time, this is John J. Thompson saying stay tuned and stay true.